Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. Uh, I'm joined today with uh, two very exciting guests who represent uh, Color, co-founder and uh, CEO, Othman Laraki of Color, and then Alicia Joe, head of research. Guys, welcome to the welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Awesome. Othman, can you give a background on how Color came to be, what it is, and what problem you're trying to solve? I guess the path for Color was a bit of a non-traditional course. My, my background prior to this had the Effectively, nothing to do with healthcare. I'm uh, the computer science background and started a few uh, software like uh, tech companies. Uh, was a uh, relatively early product manager at Google, then uh, ran product at Twitter. But what ended up being kind of my link to what we're doing right now is that my family had a fair amount of cancer history in its background. Uh, my grandmother passed away from breast cancer. My mother survived two of them. And actually, while I was at Google uh, more than 10 years ago, she discovered she has a BRCA2 mutation, which is one of the genes that increase women's risk for breast cancer. And I later found out that I have the same uh, mutation myself. And that just gave me a lot of interest in this space. Uh, But I guess five or six years ago, one of my co-founders and I uh, started looking at genomic data. He had gotten his genome sequence. We started just playing around with the information. And one of the things that was really striking was how early uh, a lot of the technology that was being used, the software to analyze the data was. And that's where we started kind of just getting interested in the space and uh, wondering whether assembling a team that combined people with a deep software background as well as genomics background could make a valuable contribution as uh, genomics became more uh, more available. Alicia, can you introduce yourself and your background and why you became really excited about drawing color? Yeah, absolutely. I actually was uh, very serendipitously came across color. So my background is actually I'm an academic by training. I spent 15 years doing breast cancer research, was very sure that I was going to become a professor and grew up in a family of of academics. Uh, And so I had um, done my training at MIT and Harvard. I worked at the Bird Institute for a long time on one of their genomics initiatives uh, and then was actually um, well into my postdoc when I heard about color. And it was really something that struck me as something that I wanted to become a part of immediately after learning about it. So I read about the color launch actually from a New York Times article, right? I think the week that they launched their first product. And I immediately knew I wanted to work for color because they had worked with Dr. Mary Claire King, who's really a giant and a legend in the field of breast cancer. And she is probably one of the most outspoken scientists around making sure that everyone who needs access to genetic testing should have access to it. And in the field, she's very well known for being someone who doesn't traditionally work with commercial companies because she's very picky about about working with the private sector. And so to see that she had worked with Color and that she had actually collaborated with them on their validation studies was a huge automatic sort of endorsement from my standpoint that meant this company actually cared a lot about science and that they've won over one of the hardest people to win over in science to work with them. 
So I knew immediately from there that I wanted to work for color. And so I actually reached out and, and, you know, kind of inquired if there were any job openings and very luckily there were. And so I actually joined very shortly after launch in 2015. I've been with the team now for, for three years. Uh, and over the past few years really have had the pleasure of working with some of the best and brightest uh, researchers in the field of breast cancer genetics and, and beyond in all of human genetics research and have really enjoyed my time here so far. For, for people who are interested in getting into this, who want to work, either start a company or invest in, in companies that are tackling cancer, can, can we sort of zoom out and sort of draw a little bit of like a market map? For example, we just met with you know, Freenome this morning that's tackling it from, from a different angle. What are the sort of different subspaces of like, you know, the spectrum or, or, or stack of, of how you can get of, of companies that can get involved in, in, in tackling the, this problem? Yeah, it's a pretty interesting, I think actually quite challenging question to think about. But like, I mean, if you take a big step back, right, like today, you know, healthcare is almost 20% of the US economy, which says two things. Like one is that it's a really you know, massive part of, <laughs> of our lives and how we kind of run kind of like just the like society, I guess, as a whole. But also it's a big statement about how inefficient we are today at how we manage the cost of care and how we kind of optimize the value we, we drive out of it. And so when I think about, you know, the kind of opportunities, the kind of the, 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 the contours of it or the surface area, you can probably break it down into a few buckets, you know, like there's one which is kind of pushing the boundaries of discovery. So, you know, using cutting edge technology to really make new discoveries or, you know, build like individual piece of technology that can have a big impact. And that's things like, you know, Freenome or Grail that are trying to, you know, build a new technology to diagnose cancer, you know, Drug discovery, I think these are all kind of like there's a whole kind of category of things that are around like just pushing the edge of science for for medicine. I think another category that's quite interesting is around the effectively scaling access to existing technology where, for example, you know, the thing that's kind of remarkable is that, you know, so Barry Clerking, who Alicia mentioned, you know, discovered the BRCA1 gene over 20 years ago. And literally in the U.S., only 20%, less than 20% of women with BRCA mutations today know about it, know, know who are carriers, know that they're carriers. And so there's a massive gap, I think, between science and access and implementation in medicine. So I think there's a huge kind of category of opportunities or, you know, companies that are kind of really focusing on that. And I, I would put color in some ways at, at more in that bucket where we're taking science that is very well established where there's a really big impact for a lot of people and trying to really take it to scale. And I think that's also a place where a lot of software and kind of the, the IT world or technology world really intersects with, with care because it's that kind of scaling of primitives that science has brought and getting them to a broad population. I think another kind of big category where I see a lot of companies tend to be less tech types, but more, I'd say more from the finance world are companies that are focusing on the economics and financials of care like so medicare advantage and there's a lot of you know it's such a massive category um so maybe so many dollars passing through the system where there's i think a whole other category that's literally entire companies that are focused on on that the, the the financial side i mean that's kind of again drastic oversimplification that i think cuts out like ignores i think a lot of big like things that would be industries into themselves but just me like today like those are three big areas where I, at least we we're seeing a lot of things happening. I don't know, Alicia, if there are are any kind of areas that you think would be interesting. Yeah, I think that um, it's it's a great 
the way that color really has uh, been thinking about entering the healthcare space and, and changing healthcare space is actually all about the access. And it's it's taking something that traditionally has cost a huge amount of money, thousands of dollars, and therefore was really only accessible to the people who had the financial means to afford the testing or had you know very good insurance policies to help cover that cost and bringing that to be more accessible to the everyday individual. I think we've seen quite a movement in the last decade or two um, where individuals, every everyday people are beginning to understand that genetics is a component of their life and their health care and something that they should care about and pay attention to. Um, and I think where color really wants to be able to make a difference is to not only bring the access for that genetics to them, but also educate the end consumer about what is genetics, how does it have an impact on your everyday health, and how can we use genetics to actually give you the right personalized plan for your health management so that if you have any risks of any kind of diseases in your family, you know about them ahead of time and actually can do something to prevent those diseases. Just to add to Alicia's point that I think is quite quite interesting is in healthcare, I think there's a lot of talk and focus about access because, you know, there's there are a lot of massive health disparities and it's both kind of both an economic missed opportunity, but also a massive social problem, obviously. And in general, when people think and talk about it, I think there's a lot of focus around the cost of care. But one thing at least we found that color that is at least as important, if not more than literally just the raw dollars uh, like Alicia mentioned, you know, early on when we launched, we got a lot of visibility when we took a $4,000 product down to a 250 at equivalent, if not better quality. What turned out, I think, in practice to be even more of an impact is solving also the ergonomics problem. Like when I got tested, for example, for to discover that I have a BRCA2 mutation about 10 years ago, it literally took me five different doctor's visits. You know, first I had to meet with a doctor, then go meet with a genetic counselor, then check my insurance, then come back for a blood draw, et cetera. And when you're, and you know, at the time I was in my, uh, I guess, late 20s, early 30s, you know, I was working at Google, so it was very easy for me to take all that time off. If you're a parent working an hourly job, there's absolutely no way you'll be able to take that kind of time. And I think a lot of services that are provided in healthcare in general are designed around the time scarcity of the physicians, but not of the patients. And that's one consideration I think that Colors really innovated on, you know, how do you take something like clinical grade end-to-end -end service and delivering it to people you know, at, in a way that's convenient for them. So for example, you know, we connect people to you know, physicians online, we have genetic counseling that is part of the product. So we've taken a lot of these things that require a lot of in-person interactions and put all of them online, which has in many cases, I think actually improved the experience, but also have had a dramatic impact on accessibility. Yeah, and I'm curious, Chris Dixon's post from a long time ago, the idea maze, I'm curious how you've sort of navigated the idea maze as it relates to you know, the spaces that we just mentioned, why was this the sort of best entry point, do you think, for, for you to build build color in relative to what some other players are doing? And how do you think that advice transfers over to other entrepreneurs you work with, perhaps often in your investing capacity when you know they come to you, super talented technologists, and they're saying, hey, you know, evaluating the idea maze and thinking where to, where to best, best focus in terms of an idea? Two general kind of patterns, I think, that, that we've applied that I think have so far really been beneficial to us. The first one is, I call it just having a depth first approach where by default, I think when a new primitive, new technology shows up, everyone thinks that they want to one day be a platform. And the default intuition is to go and do, try to cover the entire surface area because you're not yet sure what's going to be successful. And so you do a lot of things mile wide, inch deep. And historically, it's very rare, I think, that that pattern is the one that succeeds. Like if you look back at the internet, for example, you know, the early days of the internet, everyone thought that 
to be a successful internet company and to be an internet portal. You had AOL, you had Yahoo, you had Excite, Ashes, et cetera. And all of them had, you know, finance and search and news and a bunch of other services. And it turned out, you know, this one company took one feature that and did it super, super well. And that was search and that was Google. And on the basis of that, they built, you know, one of the most powerful technologies and companies in technology. Similar pattern with Amazon, right? Like Amazon didn't go beyond books until after their IPO. It's kind of insane to think about right now, right? Like, and I think that pattern seems to repeat itself a lot where when you have a new technology to get it to scale, you need, like oftentimes the thing that makes it really succeed, it'll be oftentimes around one or a very small set of applications that provide enough value that take you over the activation energy for a massive population. And we had that kind of similar intuition with genomics where, you know, your genome covers a massive amount of stuff and we understand almost none of it today. There's a small, there's a, a small amount that we understand well enough and that has a big enough impact that could take us over the activation energy. And that's why we decided to focus on initially purely on cancer and, you know, really go deep on that and build one of the best products in the world around it, but do it for scale. And that's, for example, what, why, for example, Mary Claire King was willing to work with us because of that quality. But our bet was that that was, for example, an application that, you know, impacts a massive population. Genex has a big impact in, on it. The science is well established and it's actionable, right? So that was one pattern that in terms of the idea maze for us where we were like thinking about, and, and, and some of it was tied also to my personal, you know, family story, but really around what is the application that's going to take, that it makes it ROI positive to use genomics for for large populations. So that, that was one big piece. The second uh, the second kind of principle or thought in the idea maze is one that I think oftentimes when there's a new technology, in the early days of a technology, people mistake the technology for the product. And we all, because, you know, oftentimes it's like, you know, nerds like us that go and start companies and we think that we're, we're obsessed with the technology and we think the technology is the product. And I'll, I'll first give you an analogy from a prior life and then you know, how I think it translates to genomics. I started a company that got acquired by Twitter. It was, it was a geo company. We built one of the first kind of developer APIs that, you know, that was kind of in a distributed way for geo applications. It was in the day where phones just started supporting GPS. And at the time, everyone thought that geo was going to be huge and that the killer application were going to be check-in apps. You know, all of us, everyone was like, check-in apps are going to be amazing <laughs> and everyone's going to be building check-in apps. And that was kind of like a first order idea from a GPS. You have a GPS, it gives you a point, you put it, you know, and you check in and that's going to be the application. And obviously that turned out to be completely wrong. You know, a bunch of companies got started. I don't think any of them have actually been successful. But then five years later, you look back and what's what I think is striking is literally the most valuable technology company that got created in that time window is actually a geo app, but we never think of it that way. And that company is Uber, right? Like, Literally, Uber is fundamentally a geo-based application that's completely enabled by that technology. But by the time that happened, the technology had been kind of put into the infrastructure and you think at the next order, right? And I think where that translates to, to things like genetics, I think today people think of genetics as an application. And from our perspective, genetics is a technology and the application is when it gets really integrated into our everyday care. Right. Like when you go to a pharmacy and the pharmacy, you know, will never give you a drug that will make you sick or kill you. Right. When you go see your doctor, it's incorporated into how they decide what to prioritize for screening and care. You, you won't be thinking that you're using a genetics application It's just part of the you know, infrastructure of healthcare.
so that's kind of like the other kind of big thing I think that motivates a lot of our strategy and thinking. Yeah. And as you think about the future of, uh, of color, might you expand your kits beyond genomics, like microbiomes or, or other? You know, like, again, I think the, the, at least the lens we tend to have on that is, you know, whether it's microbiome or et cetera, it's, it's a, an application on the same technology. And it's really a question of when the science and evidence and usefulness makes it worthwhile to go deep for for them, right? Like, so I think, for example, microbiome is really exciting. There's tons of really exciting, interesting science behind it, but it's still pretty early. Um, and so the question is, at what point can you actually use it to deliver care for people? I think there are a lot of interesting research-based applications, you know, for, you know, discovery, et cetera. But in terms of actual care delivery, it's still, still relatively early. Yeah. And, and talk more about about sequencing should should everybody get sequenced what what can they do with that with that information and and why why is it so game-changing yeah i mean so you know in some ways one thought on sequencing is that you know there's actually nothing that special about it except that it goes into this very expensive machine that used to be 10 times 100 times more expensive 10 years ago <laughs> or, you know, or, or more than that and i think we tend to think about it as special mainly because of that and the origin but in reality it's just a very high value data set that now is accessible about our health. And so, you know, and you know, there are different ways to, to look at this, but oftentimes, you know, doctors that look at kind of health policy, when they break down the kind of the determinants of health, you know, your genome accounts for about 30% or so of the outcomes of your health and kind of the events that are going to happen. You know, the, the rest are kind of things like lifestyle and incidents, et cetera. So from that perspective, it's just effectively just a very high signal data. So it's almost like a, a super lipid panel. Like we get a lipid panel, we don't think about it twice. Your genome is kind of something like that, that carries a lot of signal that can predict things that can drive course of treatment. And so I think as the cost curve keeps going the way it is, and I mean, I'd, I'd be very surprised if, you know, we don't see, you know, for example, several national programs and health systems incorporating it as complete standard of care. I mean, we're already seeing it, for example, with some health systems we work with that where that's uh, that's starting. Yeah, and I think the other thing to add there is, you know, you asked the question whether it's time for everyone to get their genome sequenced. I think, as Ahmed mentioned, this is a very um, rich data set that everyone already carries with them every day in their bloodstream, um, and currently we have no access to. And so it's certainly a good data stream to start ingesting. The I think one of the many barriers, in addition to cost, that have kept people from utilizing it is just that it's still a developing area of science, and therefore right now, if you get your genome sequenced, most people don't know what to do with all that data and they, they think it's going to be confusing. And that's where color really comes in and really thinks about in a world now where actually it's becoming much more affordable for everyone to get their whole genome sequenced. Then the question is, how do you extract value from that data that's immediately applicable to your health and your health care? And so, you know, we started out looking at cancer genetics as something that is very well established in the science and is very important to your health. But there's many other types of genetic areas, um, whether it's cardiovascular disease or uh, pharmacogenomics, that are very important to your everyday health. And then in addition, we know that people are very curious about how their health affects other parts of their life and how it interacts with their lifestyle. And so as we, this, the scientific community learns more about all of these associations between disease and genetics, the way that color is built is that we'll be able to continue to deliver that value back 
to the um, user so that they're able to get updates about what's the newest in the field. They're able to understand how their genetics is playing with their current set of healthcare conditions, whether it's the medications that they're on or the type of lifestyle that they lead. And so, yes, we absolutely do see genomes being very incorporated now into, uh, into everyday care. And actually, just last week, we uh, were selected by the NIH All of Us program to be one of their genome centers. And so this is an initiative that's being undertaken by the NIH to sequence one million individuals over the course of five years. And in doing so, they're creating a very large research database for scientists. But what's even better is that they're going to be returning results back to patients so that these individuals are then able to use that data to change their health management and uh, hopefully lead healthier lives. And Color is one of the companies that was chosen to uh, be a part of that. Yeah. And you guys are part of a broader trend in general as it relates to like just direct consumer testing, you know, from what you guys are doing to, you know, fertility to, to many others. You know, there was this big New York Times piece recently about how, you know, different DNA tests telling, you know, different people that they have different things. What are sort of, what are your thoughts on sort of the state of, of direct consumer testing, like across, across healthcare, maybe some areas where it works much better than when it doesn't. And how do you see that evolving over time? Yeah, so, uh, just one clarification is that Color is actually not technically a direct consumer test in the sense that um, every everything Color does is physician ordered. We make it extremely convenient, but we uh, it's still all, like still actually a medical uh, service. The um, in terms of I think the overall trend, I think there are a few things that, are, that I think are pretty pretty neat about it. I mean, one is that it is really I think demystifying the field for a lot of people. So I think it just kind of it makes it it helps transition this from being something that is you know, because like the history of genetics, like, you know, started off in around like, you know, very rare diseases with things that are very heavy and hard to deal with, et cetera. And I think progressively, you know, it's transitioned into the mainstream, I think helps just the general community, not only patients, but also doctors, frankly, because, you know, the vast majority of doctors have, you know, taken very, have taken very few genetics courses. And so I think just kind of that increased contact is, is valuable. One opinion, I mean, I have, I don't mean, I'm better, uh, Alicia, please disagree if you, if you <laughs> feel free to disagree on this, but like, I think in general, like for the, I think there's a general, there are some aspects of genetics that are entertaining and general interest, but I, I think in general, over time, you know, at the end of the day, genetics as an entertainment source is not necessarily going to be a truly mass service. I think the fundamental mass scale use of it is going to be around actual delivery of care. I guess in some ways, say it is like I think there are more effective, cheaper ways to entertain to to entertain people. I think our genomes are kind of inter- entertaining, but I think their their real value is going to be in improving people's care. However, I do think that kind of the consumerization side I think will be valuable because it engages people with their care. I think one of the you know one of the, so the biggest challenges I think in healthcare are not necessarily science or medicine. It's more you know, the economics and people's behaviors and getting people to do the right things. Like, you know, all of us know that we shouldn't smoke, uh, you know, half sugar and overeat and exercise and we should exercise and sleep uh, more. But it's our, you know, it's our behavior that's the, you know, a big part of the challenge. And so I think with things like genetics, I think it can be a helpful way to engage people in a more direct way. Mm-hmm. So, so I think as overall, it's going to be a uh, pretty positive thing for, for the community. One thought, by the way, just to kind of add on in terms of its incorporation into care, um, I think one of the most exciting things that is going to be happening over the next few years, and I think genetics is part of it, 
but I think there's a broader picture, which is, you know, when people talk about precision medicine and precision healthcare, is that, you know, by default, you know, when you go to the doctor and you kind of, your default interaction effectively assumes that you're part of the bell curve and you're at the middle of, you know, there's, you know, population risk that's assessed, you know, there's a given distribution and there are relatively few inputs that differentiate you from average. So every one of us is assumed to be average. And in practice, none of us are average. <laughs> We're all different in different ways. And there's increasing, but the default you know, practice of care today doesn't incorporate a lot of that data that's now becoming more abundant. And so with things like you know, genomics or things like your uh, you know, Apple Watch and you know, more behavioral information, et cetera, I think having a much more dynamic view of people and their risk that they're under, uh, the things that should be done to, to optimize their course of treatment, et cetera, I think overall is like going to be a very impactful part of what we call precision medicine. And I think I, I, would, I would be surprised if that at the end of the day, that's not the most important thing that happens in terms of large population management is really going from that mode of, you know, really one size fits all to being able to really customize at scale and, you know, have the, you know, process of care reaching, you know, all the way to your home and to your device, et cetera, as opposed to waiting for you to get sick and then trying to fix you. If you had to predict out, like, what's your biggest prediction for healthcare, you know, a few years from now or how it's going to evolve, would you, would you say that's it or, or what, what else would you edit or add to, add to that? I think in terms of uh, mechanics and practice, personally, I think that would be the, what my one big bet. Um, the other one I would make would be more around the economics and the ecosystem, you know, Given where we are in the U.S. healthcare, <laughs> with 20% of the almost 20% of the economy, it reminds me a lot of the mobile industry before the iPhone, where the technology and you know enabled a massive amount of innovation, and there was a lot of pent-up demand and opportunity. And at some point, there's kind of like the equivalent of an iPhone moment, where you know one of the big stakeholders defects effectively, like AT&T, you know, working with 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 Apple and accepting the iPhone, and that completely tipped the industry into the world we have today. And I wonder whether there's an opportunity for an equivalent dynamic in healthcare. Um, I think there are massive companies that have a huge amount of power. And I think there's a lot of pressure and opportunity. And I think at some point, some they're gonna, it's going to be possible to have some defections, quote unquote, that enable a very different model to start uh, taking hold. Yeah, I mean, I think the only other thing I would add is simply that currently healthcare is spending most of its time and resources and money on sick people, people who have already been diagnosed with uh, diseases or are trying to optimize around, you know, trying to extend uh, cancer patients' lives by one or two years, when, when really the opportunity here is actually to move that timeline forward towards prevention. And so instead of thinking about how you um, treat all of these um, really sick people after they've already gotten sick, how do you keep these people from getting sick in the first place? And I think that's, that's one of the luxuries that we have now in, in, in our modern healthcare age, where we can actually take in all of these various risk factors and determinants and try to predict um, how best to manage people's health care so that they actually never end up with those, uh, you know, huge uh, life-changing events. And I think genetics is definitely going to play a, a huge role in that. I think um, what Ottman mentioned about, uh, you know, the way people currently interact with genetics I think it's interesting as a as a scientist, you know, genetics is something that I've always been hugely interested in and, and something that I think about all the time. But I think for your average consumer, generally your interaction with genetics is, you know, you watched Gattaca like 10 years ago and you think that people are making designer babies. I think the truth is 
Genetics, just like everything else in your life, uh, is just another risk stratification or another input on what your health is going to look like. It's actually not nearly as deterministic as it has been portrayed in science fiction or, uh, you know, even in the early ways that we thought about genetics, because we were looking at rare diseases, we felt it was very deterministic. But actually, I think genetics, the huge opportunity is for people to understand that it's just another input along with you know, lifestyle and diet and other environmental factors that go into determining your ultimate um, health, as well as, you know, even other things like, you know, how, what your BMI is going to be, what your height is going to be. Those are all things that are actually influenced by many, many different factors. And so I think the general population is becoming more attuned to that and realizing that genetics is actually just another thing that, um, that they can take into account to make sure they lead their healthiest lives. Yeah, and what are other examples of preventive companies that you're really excited about or that you wish existed? Are you know, people taking on different preventive like you know, projects or ideas? I can tell you my, my pet uh, idea. <laughs> At least I think because I always have random ideas. But um, one thing that I tried on myself about a year ago was to wear a, um, a glucose monitor for a couple of weeks just out of curiosity. And it was absolutely fascinating and very impactful because you know, normally when you eat something, you know, you, you kind of relate to how healthy it is or the, whether it has sugar in it, et cetera, but not in a very direct way. And you might have a sugar crash a few hours later or whatnot, but you're, that, there's a very long cycle between, you know, what you choose to eat versus its impact, you know, or, or, you know, if you have bad eating habits and you gain weight, like it's, you know, that's very separate events. But wearing glucose water for, for a couple of weeks, as soon as you eat something within a few minutes, you're seeing its effect. And connecting that to how you're feeling and to what you're choosing to eat made it much harder to hide from yourself in some sense. <laughs> and I think that would be something that would be really interesting if at some point all of us have a very direct link to that, to, to real-time data like that from our bodies. Because one of the hardest things with diet is just habit modification. How do you get yourself to you know, not eat that you know, Snickers bar or whatever? And I wonder if having real-time data would be a very effective feedback loop. In the same way as like, you know, Fitbit with steps and things like that, create like a tighter return on your, you know, discipline. That'd be something I think would, whenever it's part of, you know, you know Apple Watches or things like that, that would be um, quite a interesting, uh, you know, habit modification opportunity. Yeah, I definitely think wearables are also um, definitely have made a huge impact on uh, on prevention, and especially in terms of uh, having people be more uh, thoughtful about their lifestyle and their exercise behavior. I think, yeah, to Amin's point, I think having that fast feedback loop on in terms of how your everyday decisions are um, actually affecting your your, your health um, makes people more attuned and feel more responsible for it, and I think that's very very important. It's interesting because I think a lot of the things that we take for granted today are actually probably determined somewhat by your genetics and you just don't realize it. I know everybody, for example, thinks about, um, you know, when you look at the back of an ibuprofen bottle, it always says you should take two. And I don't actually know anybody who actually takes two because everybody knows, oh, like I usually take one and then I wait three hours and take another one. Or somebody will be like, oh, if I don't take, if I don't take four, it doesn't even matter. You know, everybody knows that they actually have 
different doses of ibuprofen that they want to take. Um, and, and that's actually determined by your genetics, but also, you know, other things like your, your body weight, uh, and your lifestyle, you know, whether you've eaten recently. Uh, and so I think it's all about taking all these inputs and putting them together and then actually making personalized decisions for yourself that you feel more ownership of that will hopefully bring people to take better, faster action in, uh, in their own preventative and uh, healthy lifestyles. Yeah. Often I'm curious to get into it and Alicia, please jump in. Um, your sort of investment thesis in healthcare, putting on your investor hat for a little bit, but specifically as it relates to markets. So, and that, you know, the flip side of that question is sort of what's your request for products in terms of when really smart, talented technologists are, you know, come to you and say, Hey, get into healthcare, think about where, you know, where I can make a huge opportunity. What do you advise them on? What do you look for from a market perspective in, in healthcare when investing? So I, as an with my investor hat on, I think healthcare is actually a really hard place to invest <laughs> in general. And one of the, especially if you're looking at, you know, Silicon Valley types of companies, because it's a, effectively, I call it a very inefficient market in the sense of, you know, if as a, if I, if I, if I define efficiency as pricing and product being able to differentiate and drive market success, like I think in healthcare, there are so many stakeholders and such a complex ecosystem where, you know, oftentimes the person who's benefiting is not the person who's deciding, nor the person who's paying. Like usually all three of those are separate entities. <laughs> and often, and sometimes even each one of those roles is split between multiple ones, right? Like literally your employer probably pays for your healthcare, but it's managed by an insurance company that has not entirely aligned incentives with you or your employer. employer. The decisions about your health are made by your doctor who's Incentives are kind of orthogonal to all to the first, the other two, and all that is for your health and where your personal incentives are mis, potentially misaligned with all all of the parties involved. And I think it makes that makes healthcare in general a much harder place to build companies um, and to get market success. So that's one kind of general consideration. <laughs> I think the other one is that the gap between science and market is also much wider. You know, if you have the idea for PageRank, how to better rank search results, you can hack it, you know, hack it on your machine and have it live for people to play with out of your Stanford dorm within, you know, a couple of weeks or at least months. Whereas literally today, like, you know, we're probably seeing some things that, you know, where the science hit, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And so building companies that rely on scientific innovation, but are trying to get market success, I think is very hard in healthcare and the timescale of usual tech investors. So I think those are two like kind of very big challenges if you're thinking as an investor in, in healthcare. Kind of with investor hat on, like often I, I do tend to be very concerned about when companies, you know, on the path to success first need to overcome a, a genuine scientific hurdle and then need to access the market. So that's kind of like one general kind of thing that tends to, I think tends to make things quite difficult for, for folks, especially coming from the tech world where we assume you make the science and then the, you know, the market shows up. Last question is, um, if you know, you take one of the entrepreneurs, you've backed Othman, you know, uh, Ben Silverman at Pinterest or Stuart at, at Slack, or even, Hey, Jack at, at Twitter, uh, where you used to work. If they came to you and said, um, Hey, I'm, I'm looking to get into healthcare, you know, as I'm like, where should I, what do you, what do you think I'd be uniquely suited given my, my access and resources and skills to, to take on? What would you say or what advice would you give them? I would first start off by making sure they understand it's probably an irrational decision <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because if, if it's, if the higher order bit 
is to just build a company that will get market success and you know deliver you know products and generate revenue or returns etc i think it's not the optimal path if you're a tech entrepreneur i think on the flip side there are very high returns in terms of the impact you can have i mean you know i you know was fortunate to work on products that touched you know hundreds of millions of people but never got to meet people who talked about how what we did saved their lives and but i think it's one of those things where i would really focus in on on something where you would want to do it despite the cost and assume it's it's effectively you will forego other opportunities that might be higher returns easier etc um but where it's uh, something so that you personally want to do you know sometimes like you know the the best missions are not the ones you choose but the ones that choose you in some sense like you know for example for me it's like very tied to my personal and family history and like that impact and seeing families like mine etc is makes it worthwhile you know so that that would be the the first thing i would tell them is you know you should do it in some ways for an irrational reason in some ways for something that you personally want and uh, because otherwise it's probably not worthwhile i uh sometimes the missions uh don't you don't choose them they choose you i think that's a good place to good place to end where can people learn more about color uh, online and what should they stay tuned for um and where can they get, get involved yeah, so they uh, come on color.com. We're, um, we're, we're hiring. We're always looking for great people to join us. Um, and the, uh, and on, on the kind of product and uh, side, you know, we're continuously, as Alicia mentioned, you know, iterating on the product. And, you know, it's a field that's expanding very quickly. Um, and so we're both, you know, following the you know, innovation that's happening, but also doing many research collaborations ourselves to help, uh, you know, push it forward. So, Alman, Alicia, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 